Father, you are uh, great, greater than we can comprehend. Father, we thank you that you um, have seen fit to become uh, like us, um, to take on human flesh, to live uh, a life with us, and to, to be able to know us and to be known to us in a, in a personal way. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for how you love us. Amen. So I am not Pastor Al. Um, I know many of you, but I don't know all of you. So that means that some of you don't know who I am. I'm Jason Hubner. I work with uh, college students at Emporia State. I have the greatest job in the world, and then I get to sit and uh, drink coffee and talk about Jesus uh, with, with college students. And I love doing that. Um, if you've been here the last several weeks, you know that Al, I wasn't here to see kind of those, those blocks, that progression, the story that Al has been telling of God's word, of how it progresses from beginning to end and to help you to understand the, this great story. Um, this week, we kind of take a detour from the story. I'm not going to, to kind of walk through that story with you, um, but I am going to walk through God's word with you. So we take a little detour from that. I, I do want to start by sharing with you something I thought was this uh, really interesting kind of connection to what I wanted to share with you. Um, during World War II, there was a secret group of academic researchers who were working for the United States military, and they were doing things like figuring out, the you know, chemists figuring out the best way to launch a rocket and uh, all of the different scientific elements of of war. And so they were meeting together, and, and one key task of this secret research group was how to protect United States bombers. The uh, aircraft carrying these heavy bombs needed armor to survive the mission, but too much armor would make these aircraft you know, cumbersome. They wouldn't be able to, to do their job. They would be too heavy to fly. So there was a man named Abraham Wald, and he was a mathematician, and he helped solve the riddle on how to arm, how to protect, how to put armor on these aircraft. And what he said was that instead of examining the aircraft that had returned from missions, riddled with bullet holes, and then saying, well, here's where we put the armor, he said that the researchers had to reconsider the evidence that was in front of them. The planes that had made it home safely, um, that's not where they should be looking. They needed to turn their attention to the planes that never came home. Where had they been hit, causing their destruction? In the same way, I want to turn our attention this morning to the friends, to the family who aren't here. Instead of looking at, at our lives this morning, I want us to consider those who, who aren't here with us. Many of us know someone, a friend, a family member, who used to be in church. Someone who used to have a, like a regular Bible study. Maybe they came to your small group. Uh, maybe they were a part of, of what you do as a follower of Jesus. But they seem to have walked away from faith. Uh, why does this happen? You know, oftentimes, I, I think this happens at a key life transition Maybe it's leaving a home, uh, leaving high school, and going on to, to whatever comes next. And those are a lot of times the students that I'm talking to, people who have left home and left faith behind and, and gone to the college campus. A lot of times it's maybe the transition from that uh, academic life to the real world, 
And, and those are the ones that keep me awake at night. Students that I knew who were a part of Christian Challenge, a part of a Bible study, a part of our church, and then after college, move on to something else. Maybe it's a, a new job, a new community. But during those points of transition, oftentimes, people choose to walk away from faith. They move to a new situation. They take hits, and they don't return home. Why does this happen, and, and what does God's word have to say in response to that. This morning, I want to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you, turn it open to that. We'll look at that, and I'll find, I believe, I'll share with you three lessons from the second half of Hebrews chapter 10. The first one that I think we'll find is this. Those who truly follow Jesus can be totally sure of your salvation. There's a once and for all freedom that comes from, from guilt and from sin. A second lesson that comes up in Hebrews chapter 10 is that those who follow Jesus can never let go of him because the pull of this life, like gravity pulling us down, drags us away from God unless we cling to him. And a third lesson, I think, in Hebrews chapter 10 that teaches us is that the bottom line in our search for answers about how, how and why people walk away from God is this. People walk away from religion. People walk away from tradition. People walk away from human opinion. But I don't think people walk away from the person of Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll need to start this morning. I want to read with you from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Here's what our text says this morning. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. A lot of richness in this second half of Hebrews chapter 10. I want to turn our attention to just five words in the text, starting with this first word of confidence. In verse 19, this phrase, that we might have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, maybe you heard at the beginning of this passage in verse 19, the the word therefore, an important lesson in in reading God's word. If if I'm reading from a text and I start with the word therefore, you know, you always ask, well, what comes before that? What is, is leading up to this point? In the first half of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews has explained that Jesus came to earth to do the will of the Father. He sets aside the ritual sacrifices for sin that the Jewish community had adopted and followed throughout time. Jesus comes and they can now set aside the ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament in the Old Testament temple. And instead, now from this point forward, followers of Jesus are made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. 
I want to go back and, and read uh, a part of the first half of, of chapter 10. Starting in verse 14, the author says this, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those who have come into relationship with Jesus are being made perfect forever. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. There's uh, two sections in, in those verses, in verses 14 through 18, where the author of Hebrews quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. So the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah had, had predicted there will come a time in the future where uh, a need for sacrifice will come to an end. There will be a, a once and for all perfection of how this system has unfolded. And from that time moving forward, instead of a, a ritual, instead of following a, a religious um, practice, there will be this, this freedom where God himself writes his law on the hearts and minds of his people, and things are made perfect. We know this to be Jesus. The author of Hebrews says this uh, Jesus is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Because of his perfect one-time sacrifice, we can have confidence in approaching the Father. There's never again an uncertainty of where a person stands with God. We can approach him confidently, the author of Hebrews says. So the first word that I would point our attention to is this language, this idea of confidence, that we can confidently approach the creator of the universe. Second big word in uh, chapter 10 that I would uh, point your attention to is the language of sincerity. In verse 22, author says this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. Um, in the Greek uh, New Testament. This language, uh, the word that we translate into sincere in English, it comes from the idea that a craftsman who, uh, you know, in the first century maybe is, is forming a, a piece of pottery to, to hold water, to hold liquid, a craftsman would oftentimes form that piece of pottery, and perhaps there would be some imperfections in, in the workmanship. And, you know, before everything was made with, you know, automated machines and an awesome process, it was really hands-on. And so if something went wrong and a, a piece of pottery, a, a water jug had a, an imperfection or a crack in it, uh, perhaps a, an unscrupulous um, salesperson would take wax and, and smear melted wax into all of the, the cracks and broken places in the pottery take it to the marketplace and, and demonstrate this is a sincere water jug. It's without cracks. It's without compromise. And so uh, the translators of the Greek, that's where this language of sincere comes from, is that it's without compromise, it's without cracks. So this idea of, of sincerity, I think, means that we approach God, we approach Jesus with a heart free from hidden cracks and deception. Genuine faith is not about what we say we believe. It's not about the, the lip service part of life. It's not about church attendance. It's not about 
um, gathering together in, in a building like this on a Sunday morning. Instead, sincere faith is about the human heart wholly surrendered to Christ, free from hiddenness, all of our brokenness, all of our compromise laid out before the Savior. Uh, a third big word, big idea in the second half of Hebrews 10 is the language of assurance. In verse 22, the author picks up, says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood that washes us clean, the baptism, the purity of of surrendering life fully to Jesus. Um, This assurance of faith, I think, means that a life surrendered is free from guilt, made sinless before God by God. It's not that an individual comes before God and says, well, I I want to be in a right relationship with God, and if I try hard, if I am good enough, if I'm better than than my neighbors around me, then everything will will be okay. But it's not that reality. It's a reality that we can come before God in full assurance because he changes us. He does the work of salvation. In uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This language of full assurance of faith. If it's up to you, if it's up to me to try to make our place before God sure, then we have no confidence. We have no assurance that we are in right relationship with God. I, I can give a, a demonstration of how this would work in my life in everything that I do. If I tell Lisa, you can be sure that I will wash the, ditch- the dishes this afternoon. Like, I don't know, it's maybe 50-50 chance, 80, I don't know, 80-20, and I'm a good dishwasher. If you tell your boss, you can be sure that I'll, I'll do the job, and you do the job well 90% of the time, is that full assurance that you'll do the job. I can't think of anything in my life, in my human effort, that I am 100% sure I always do it 100% of the time, 365 days a, a year, you know, every hour of the day. I always do this thing, and I've never failed to get it right. I, I can't demonstrate anything like that in my life. That's why we, we have no hope in our own goodness, in our own religious effort, in our own right standing before God, except that he does the work of salvation. Um, not only does he do this, this work of salvation, of offering us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, 
he offers us this inheritance, this salvation, this right relationship with himself, and it can never spoil or fade. It can never be lost. It can never be, um, it never rots away. It never rusts. It never loses its potency or power. And why does it never lose that? Because the creator of the universe himself stands and in his power shields our salvation from anything that would call it into question or, 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 or make us wonder, can I lose this? Can, will this slip from my fingers somehow if I make some mistake? Perhaps if you're more powerful than the creator of the universe and you endeavor to steal your salvation, your inheritance away from him, maybe you could enter into that conversation. Have you ever heard the, uh, the philosophical you know, conundrum, can God create like a boulder so big that he can't pick it up? And it's a ridiculous question, right? It's not a useful philosophical um, entertainment, but God himself, who is all-powerful, protects our salvation, protects our inheritance from anything that would call it into question. It's because of this that we have assurance of our faith. Now, the next phrase in uh, the second half of Hebrews 10 is kind of tricky. We can have full assurance of faith, it says in verse 22. And then here's what it says in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you hear that I've uh, introduced to you this conundrum? Uh, the, The text says hold on unswervingly because life life is like a great storm Uh, it's not a a lazy river it's not uh, we don't live a life of of ease of uh, of of comfort when it comes to our spiritual lives the pull of life is away from god and so i am i'm kind of highlighting this is this kind of is counterintuitive i'm highlighting for you something within the text that doesn't easily match up it doesn't easily like make sense and, and fit together well, that they stand in, in contrast to one another. Your faith is, if you are a follower of Jesus, your assurance, your salvation is sure. It is protected by God himself. Now, hold on without swerving one way or the other. Uh, I don't think that it's one or the other of these realities, that it's both. Kind of like a suspension bridge. Think of like the Golden Gate Bridge. It's, it's anchored on one side of the bay and it's anchored on the other side of the bay. And the strength where we live is in the tension between the two anchors. It would be easier for us to say, here's, here's the, the way to understand this. Your salvation is sure. It is protected by God. And so just rest in that assurance And that's all that you have to concern yourself with. But the author says, you can have this assurance. And then he paints the picture of the other side of the bridge, the other anchor where he says, hold on unswervingly. And the author of Hebrews isn't the the only place within Scripture where we find this. I think Peter, Paul, um, the author of Hebrews, there are uh, several places where the language is this This is protected. You can know that this is sure, that you are secure in your salvation with the Lord. But fight the good fight of of faith. Persevere. Hold on. Um, 
I think the, that old quote from Winston Churchill is, is apt here. Never, 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 never give up. And I don't know that I can, or I mean, actually, I don't desire to like release you to hold on to only one or the other. Because the, the counsel of Scripture kind of works this way, right? That um, it's there on purpose. That the author of Hebrews has introduced into our, our text this, this paradox. That it's not one or the other, but that it's both. And so I don't want to try to like untie the knot or, or tie the knot together, whatever the, the illustration might be. I can only tell you what the text says. Your salvation as a follower of Jesus is 100% sure. Never, 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 never give up holding on to your faith, persevering in belief, not swerving from one side to the other. The last uh, big word that I would share with you from the first half of, of Hebrews 10 is this. Spur one another on, the text says. Spur, let us consider now how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. There is a great advantage in healthy Christian community. Continue meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I, I've grown up, uh, I've heard that phrase, I've heard that text often, and I think growing up, I heard that language of habit, and I introduced in my own mind something that, that was not helpful. Uh, I had in my mind growing up that, you know, like a habit is like making your bed or brushing your teeth. You know, something that's it's good and you really kind of ought to do it because it's a good thing to do. I don't think that that is the kind of habit that the author of Hebrews is talking about. I think this kind of habit is kind of like for the soldier going out into a firefight, make sure that you're in the habit of putting bullets in the gun and, and strapping on your body armor, making sure that you know, your, your buddy has your back when things get really, really difficult. That's the kind of habit that the author of Hebrews 10 is talking about. It's an eternal life and an eternal death kind of habit. Spur one another on. Continue meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So if that's what the, the text of Hebrews 10 has to say about the security of our salvation and the significance of holding on, never swerving from one place to the other, what do we, how do we apply this? How do we understand this when we think about that friend or the family member that we know who seems to have walked away from faith. Why does that happen? I think that it's not one thing that happens in any person's life that causes them to walk away from faith, but rather it's, it's like a, a stacking up, you know, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's this stacking up of, uh, of issues, of factors. So I want to tell you what I think are probably, in my experience and having conversations with people, maybe the five biggest factors that lead people to walk away from faith. The first one, would just call it doubt. That question, you know, is God real? That nagging curiosity deep inside that, that perhaps what I'm doing in, in attending church or perhaps these things that I've heard are, are not true. God seems distant. Um, he's silent. Uh, my life, I, I just, is this the truth? And it's a feeling that's hard to put a finger on and, and you know, kind of lay out you know, explicit points as to what doubt really is. But I think it's really common. Uh, 
I think that there are times when, when I doubt, perhaps when you doubt, the problem maybe is that we don't talk about that, that you begin to feel some doubt, some question, is God real, can I count on him? And we don't give words to that, we don't express that for fear that Am I walking away from my faith if I express this, if I think carefully about this? And I think just the opposite is true. That when we experience some form of doubt, the most appropriate thing that we can do is to give voice to that, to share that with with another follower of Jesus and and to begin to talk about that. Uh, So doubt, I think, is a really common thing. Most of us doubt, and that's okay. But when doubt is coupled together with some of these factors that I'm going to tell you about, then I think you begin to see a, a, a movement, a weight that's hard to bear. A second factor that I think is really common would be just what I would kind of lump together as intellectual hurdles, um, evolution versus creation, or a, a distrust of the, the text of the Bible. Um, maybe it's competing worldviews or, or other religions. Um, I think almost without exception, In my conversations with college students, someone um, who tells me, you know, here's my issue. Here's why I I used to come to Christian Challenge. I used to go to church, and I've made a decision not to anymore. And here's my intellectual hurdle that, you know, this is the thing, why I've I've made the decision. And maybe it is one that that I've, I've named for you. Now, when I have that conversation, almost without exception, the intellectual hurdle is, is real, it's significant. I don't want to, to marginalize those questions of, of the intellect and, and how do those match up with, with what we know to be true about God. But almost without exception, the intellectual hurdle is the first thing that we talk about, but pretty quickly, uh, the conversation turns from an intellectual hurdle to an issue of the heart, an issue like doubt, an issue like some of the other things that I'm gonna share with you. I think the intellectual hurdle is really, um, whatever it might be, is not the key significant issue. Almost without exception, in my experience and in my conversations, the intellectual hurdle, uh, I am not a a great um, apologist for for Scripture, for God's Word, for Christianity, but I think in a 20-minute conversation, I can poke a lot of holes in the intellectual hurdles that college students have but it's much more difficult for me to poke holes in their doubt or in their disillusionment. And so I think a lot of times an intellectual hurdle, when stacked up with doubt or disillusionment or some other factors, that creates a situation where someone walks away from a a church or walks away from a belief in God. So this third one I just alluded to is disillusionment. And I think this might be the thorniest issue, the thorniest factor um, that I would name this morning of, of all that I know. When a follower of Jesus, when a Christian, fails to live according to the instruction of God's word, someone is always watching. Whether that's me or you, uh, a parent, uh, um, anyone who, uh, a Christian who does not live like a Christian, someone who's not marked by grace and love, um, if you couple an experience that someone might be wrestling with doubt, wrestling with an intellectual hurdle, and they get up close to a person who would proclaim their Christian belief, but then fail to to live a life of of grace and love and generosity, I think that plants a seed, creates a a, a issue 
of uh, lingering doubt and can cause a person to kind of read that, that disillusionment, that this Christian thing is not all that it adds up to be because what I see demonstrated in the life of, you know, fill in the blank, and couple that with doubt, couple that with an intellectual issue, and that's oftentimes what leads someone away from relationship with God. A fourth one that I would point out, I would call conforming to the community. When the key relationships in any person's life, uh, when, when your key friendships, family members, when they don't share Christian faith, it's almost easy for anyone to begin to conform to the beliefs of those in their community. I think it is great to invest in friends who are not Christians, who are not followers of Jesus, to choose a job, to choose a school, to choose a hobby that will put you in close proximity to people who do not follow Jesus so that you might have the opportunity to demonstrate what your life is like, how your life is different, to speak the truth and love of the gospel into their lives. I think that's, uh, just as a, a side note, I think not only is that good, that it's per, it perhaps should be like mandatory as Christians. If the only people in your life are the people who would, would like kind of call themselves, yes, I am a Christian, I go to church, I'm a good moral person. If those are the only people in your lives, that's a different sermon. But it's a different problem. It's a significant problem. It should be our habit, our discipline, that we get creative and make opportunities to put ourselves in close proximity with people who do not follow Jesus. But the bulk, the, the heart, the meat of, of our relationships should be with key people who are followers of Jesus, people who are, are more mature, further down the road of faith than we are, that we have mentors, that we have Bible study leaders, that we have pastors, friends who can guide us in that road. If that's not the case, if the weight of your community is with people who don't believe the same way that you do, if I'm a betting man, I'll predict that pretty soon, if the weight of your community is not with followers of Jesus, I think that you'll begin to wrestle with doubt, some intellectual hurdle, some disillusionment. The, the voices on those factors will get louder and louder and louder in your life. I think the bulk, the weight of your community needs to be with those who follow Jesus. A fifth factor that I think oftentimes plays a role when people walk away from faith is pain and loss. Any deep hurt, like the death of a loved one, um, can either move a person closer to God where we would cling to him in times of difficulty or push people away from God when it seems like God has failed us or, or let us down in that most significant of ways. I'm convinced that Christian faith gives us actually not, that this isn't like a weak point. Pain and loss is not a, a weak point of Christian faith, but it's actually a strength of the, the big story of how God interacts with us. That when we experience hurt, when we experience pain, when we experience loss, that we can just culturally, our culture can choose between you've lost a loved one, that's to be expected because we live in a, a chaotic and meaningless world. It's a really empty, uh, depressing perspective. Or 
that there's something else to this life, and there's a, that your life has meaning and purpose for a short time, and there's actually a reason why people die. There's a reason we experience loss and hurt. That's the impact of sin. Here's the answer for why the world works the way that it does. I think Christian faith provides good answers for those greatest questions when we've lost a loved one or we experience some hurt or disappointment. But if you're wrestling with doubt and you have an intellectual hurdle that's been picking away, ticking in the back of your mind, and then you experience significant loss, I think, again, those factors add up and you can see how someone could walk away from faith, walk away from belief. In closing, I want to leave you with a a couple of kind of last thoughts, last big ideas. First one is this. So this idea that your faith, your salvation, if you have a relationship with Jesus, is completely secure, but cling to Jesus and never stop. When I have communicated that message in the past, either at church or with college students, almost without exception, church is over, we're headed out the door, someone will come up to me afterwards and say this, I think that what you said is true. I think I can wrap my mind around that and understand it. But my uh, child, my my uncle, my best friend, uh, they used to be here at church. They brought their family here. They seemed to be walking with God, but this event happened. They walked away. They've never come back. And, and I don't know what to do about that. And, and don't hear me say this as like, don't tell me that story. If you have that story and you want to, I'll be up front. I'm easily found. I'll be right here. Come and tell me your story. Here's the thing, what I think is the problem when we tell that story. That we have God's word. We have scripture that tells us your faith is secure, but never, never let go. And we think about this language of security and we have God's word, and it's like we take our personal experience and like a a set of glasses or a lens, we put it in front of God's word. We use that idea of personal experience, a family member, a friend who's walked away from faith, we use that personal experience as a lens through which we interpret God's word. And of course, that's reverse, right? That we, we take those and we switch them around that we look through the lens of Scripture, we look through the lens of God's Word, and even though it doesn't always provide easy answers, we use the the Scripture, we use the teaching of God's Word in order to interpret our life's situation. So when you come and and you tell me about your friend or your family member who had an experience as a child, seemed to be right with God, but then walked away, I want to hear that, but I want to help you to put God's word in front of it and to use God's word to interpret your life. And not just in this particular area. This is a great tool that I don't know where I heard it, uh, but I think I've heard it a a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand times, and it's true and helpful for me over and over again that whatever is happening in our lives, that we don't use that life circumstance to understand God's word, but we use God's word to understand what's true and real no matter what's happening in our lives around us. That would be my encouragement for us as, as followers of Jesus, as we've gathered together this morning, and, and we consider where we are at with the Father, where we are at with the creator of the universe, 
Have we come before him with a sincerity of heart? Or is there some deception? Is there some part of ourselves that's broken that we've tried to cover over and hide from him? And do we need to to be sincere before him? Perhaps you have wrestled with questions of doubt and you need to hear that the creator of the universe in his power guards your inheritance. Perhaps that's what you need to, to leave this morning with. And perhaps what you need to leave this morning with is that lesson that your experience has to be interpreted looking through the lens of God's word. Father, wherever we're at this morning as individuals, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts and let your word speak to what we need to hear this morning. Father, for those who need to hear that they have covered up a part of their lives, that they've hidden some part of themselves from you, and that they need to be sincere, need to be fully um, vulnerable and open before you, to know your salvation, to be washed by your blood, the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray that if that's true for some, that you would do that work in their hearts. Father, for some who have questioned and wondered, can they be right before you? Can they approach you confidently? Father, I pray that we would be able to place our full confidence in coming before you, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, because of your plan of salvation to rescue us in spite of ourselves. Father, I pray that we would be able to confidently approach you in the, in the darkness of the night to pray to you, to ask for your guidance. Father, I pray that we would hold tight to you without swerving, swerving from one side to the other, that we would never, never, never give up holding close to you. And Father, I pray that when we experience um, this kind of situation in our lives, that we would use your word to interpret what's true and what's real. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word as a guide, and Father, I pray that you would make it clear to us this week. Amen. Thank you, guys.